we're studying the book of Jonah, as you know, today we're going to do a chapter two and maybe get into three a little bit. Uh, I don't think I need to remind you of what is going on. I think you're aware of all that that preceded. But Jonah is in the belly of the great fish. The Bible does not say whale. It's a great fish. It's a sea monster. Whether it was one that exists or God specially created it, we don't know for certain. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, it's important for me, for you to just note, um, of course, we read in English. I read from the ESV translation, but uh, prayed to uh, the Lord, and that's Yahweh. It's in capitals. So that's Yahweh, his God, his Elohim. So these are two very important titles and names of God in the Old Testament. But Jonah, remember, is a Jew. He was a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II. He has re, uh, rebelliously defied the will of God for him to go to Nineveh, and hence he's in this belly of this fish. But his prayer has a series of parts to it. Part one, which we're going to start here in a minute, is his confession. That's chapter uh, verse two through verse six. And then in verse seven is a verse of praise to the Lord. And then verse eight and verse nine is indicative of his repentance. And it, it closes with this marvelous statement, salvation belongs to Yahweh, which is the vital center of the book doctrinally. It's the doctrinal center of the book. Now I'll get to that in just a minute. So we're now dealing with, in effect, verses two through six, Jonah's confession. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible. I called, this is Jonah now, I'm in verse 2, I called out to Yahweh, to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Now, obviously, if you think of the point, it took God's discipline in Jonah's life for him to pray this. He was not praying this when God told him to go to Nineveh. He wasn't praying it on the ship headed to Tarshish. Now he's in the belly of the great fish, and he's praying this. So out of my distress is due to his sin, due to his rebellion, he's praying. God had to get him to this point for him to pray the kind of prayer he's about to pray. So what we are talking about in this context is the disciplinary hand of God on his servant Jonah, to get his servant to repent. And often, and I have nothing specific in mind here, but often that's what God has to do to us. Discipline us to get us to the point where we're willing to change our behavior, change our actions, change our attitudes to be more in line with what God wants for us. God always has our best interests at heart. God always has the best for us. By faith, we recognize this. Jonah refused to obey God, so God had to discipline him. So if you want to be very frank, God has Jonah exactly where he wants him. Albeit, it's in the belly of a fish, but it's attitudinally, spiritually. Jonah is now where he's hit bottom, so to speak, in his life, and now he's turning back to the Lord. And then that marvelous affirmation, and he answered me. We have that certainty in the Bible 
that when we pray, God hears and God answers. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be open. Seek and you shall find. The certainty is that when a child of God prays, God hears and answers. Now he goes on, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. Now this is a metaphor, but Sheol is a Hebrew word. All it is doing is from the Hebrew into English. H-E-O-L. Sheol in Hebrew can have two meanings to it. It can mean hell, or it can mean just the grave. And so you have to look at the context which it is. So what John is doing is out of the belly of this grave, quote, unquote, I cried. What grave? Well, he's in the belly of a fish. <laughs> so He's crying out to God that even in this most desperate situation, you heard a voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Please know, end of verse 3, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah clearly confessing and admitting and acknowledging that he is in the situation he's in because of his disobedience to God, God did this to him. And so he's acknowledging that. And as I said earlier, before everything blew up, um, God has Jonah exactly where he wants him. He wants Jonah to repent. He wants Jonah to change his direction, both spiritually as well as geographically. And so he continues. Then I said, this is Jonah, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall end upon your holy temple. Verse 4 is a confession that he has been going in the opposite direction from God. Now he's turning back toward God. That is a form, I should really say, a figure of speech of repentance. But when he says, I shall look again upon your holy temple. I mean, more than likely, it is referring to the temple in Jerusalem, but it could also be referring to the holy temple of God in heaven, his throne room, his, his abode in heaven. And so, I mean, it's kind of a judgment call which one he means. More importantly, what Jonah is acknowledging is, Lord, I have been running away from you. I now want to come back to you. I look upon your holy temple where you are. I, I don't want to be in the situation I'm in anymore. I'm turning back toward you. And so the metaphor, the figure of speech, is the holy temple of God. Whether, again, it's in Jerusalem or the one in heaven. The important point is he's changing his behavior. He's changing his attitude. He's changing his spiritual condition. He continues in verse 5, the waters closed in over me, and this is an infinitive of purpose, to take my life. In words, it's not hard to figure it out. It was in a life-threatening situation. But verse 3, your, your billows passed over me. God has done this to Jonah. And he's acknowledging that, the deep rounded me. And these descriptive phrases of being in the belly of a weeds were wrapped my head at the roots of the mountains. In other words, 
mountains of the ocean, the mountains of the Mediterranean Sea. He's in the depths of it. He's of the foundation, the base of the mountains that are in the Mediterranean Sea. Because as you know, oceans and seas are just like planet Earth. They have valleys and mountains and so on. So he's saying, this fish has taken me to the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. And so verse five, in a way, is describing this fish taking him in a plunge to a watery grave. I went down to the land whose bars closed up me upon me forever. Yet you, and that is God, you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit. And the pit, again, is for your speech for uh, the, the grave, but the, the grave of water. So I mean, he's describing all these figurative uh, descriptions and metaphorical language, what it's been like to be in the belly of the fish as he plunges deep and rises and plunges deep. And then he adds, oh, Lord, my God. And so this, it's, it's quite wonderful in the Hebrew language, but it's Yahweh, my Elohim. It's a statement of theology. It's a statement of belief. It's a statement of faith, but it's a statement of a personal relationship with God. His personal relationship has been restored. And he's just, he's acknowledging that God is sovereign over his life, that God is Lord over his life. And he has brought himself. He is where he is because of what he is. And in a, in a sense, and I, I can't have anything specific in mind here, in a, our way back to God, if we have fallen by the wayside, if we've fallen out of fellowship with the Lord, our way back to God is acknowledging that intimate personal relationship with him, but acknowledging that he's sovereign acknowledging that he's our Lord, acknowledging that trying to run our lives the way we run our lives is normally rather disastrous. Now, for Jonah, he openly defied God, and God had to do this to get Jonah back to where God wants him to be. So this is a confession of Jonah, verses 6. It's a confession of Jonah that he is where he is because of his sin and his defiance of God. But he acknowledges God's sovereign right over his life, his sovereign right to do what he wants to do. He, God, what he wants to do. And he acknowledges that you are my, oh Lord, my God. And it's, it's quite a wonderful affirmation from this rebel. <laughs> and so it's, a, it, it's not difficult at all, but I wanted to unpack a little bit some of the figurative language. I, I don't know if there are any questions, but any questions before we move on? Yeah, Jim, I, you know, I think God meets us where we are in our life, even though we would go into the pit of Sheol. You know, <laughs> I think, isn't it David that says, where can I go? But you are there. And, and yes. so regardless of how much despair we might have or how much we might find guilt in ourselves, God can redeem us when we have made that decision to receive Christ. And 
we are not lost, right? He can find us even in the belly of a whale and he can find us wherever we are in our lives. And I th isn't this something that would encourage people, I mean, regardless of how depressed they might be. I mean, I think there's a lot of people right now that feel cut off from family and, and, and lots of things. And, you know, you hear about people taking their lives because of despair and things like that. And, you know, you'd hate to think that a Christian would ever get to that point, but we're all human in a sense. And well, yeah, I mean, there, um, there's so many comments I could make in, in relation to what you're saying. I'm doing a series in January and February in my church on Elijah. I'm preaching a five-week series, and I'm just about finished studying for it. But the fourth message in that series is going to be the despair in Elijah's life. I mean, after his great victory on Mount Carmel, he goes into the pits of depression, the pits of despair. He's wallowing in self-pity. And it's fascinating, and it's just in chapter 19 in the book of 1 Kings, but it's fascinating how God deals with him. And that's the approach I'm taking uh, in this series uh, on Elijah. He's a fantastic prophet. I mean, he does immensely important things in that battle with the Baal on Mount Carmel. But it's then, then what follows reminds us this giant of the faith is just like you and me. He struggles with exactly the same things all of us struggles in the ups and downs of living in a fallen, broken world. And his great faith, which is exhibited on Mount Carmel, is replaced by immense fear of Jezebel. And you, when you read that, you think, well, he just, just what happened in his life, how can he be afraid of Jezebel? But yet, let's face it, I mean, she killed multiple prophets of God. And she says, as you, as my prophets were on Mount Carmel, you will be tomorrow. I'm going to kill you. And he runs. And then he goes into, and that's exactly the same. And where does God meet him? God meets him where he's at. And the very first thing God does is he takes care of him. He feeds him. He lets him rest. And I mean, all that, I stopped going through that. I'll give you the whole exposition of the message. But that's exactly what God meets us where we are, deals with our immediate need, whatever that might be, maybe it's, you know, you need rest, you need sleep, you need food, or whatever it is, and then God begins his corrective discipline to get us back to where he wants us, and that's the loving hand of our Heavenly Father meeting our needs, taking care of our needs, but correcting us when we stumble and fall, and that's what I love about Elijah. That's why I'm excited about preaching this series, because it really, Elijah is just like every one of us, high points of life, and then the pits of despair that can follow. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an immensely important. Here's Jonah. God meets him where he is, and he puts him in the only place that's going to force Jonah to acknowledge God's sovereignty and plan for his life in the belly of a fish. Thanks, Jim. And so he acknowledges that in this tremendous prayer that we're reading. Now, in verse 7, in a sense, is a, is a statement of praise right in the middle of the prayer. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now, that you, you, you can look at that two different ways. 
when my life was fading away in the belly of the fish, et cetera, et cetera, I remembered the Lord. I remembered Yahweh. Now, it isn't that he forgot about him, but he remembered who he is. That is, who God is. The sovereign Lord of the universe, the sovereign Lord of his life. And he uses the name Yahweh. I remembered Yahweh. I remembered who he is. I remember what you're like. I remember your characteristics. I remember how you have dealt with me through my life. I remembered that. And again, that is, that is an important tool that God uses in our lives, our memory. Because our memory will stir up, will stir up those flashbacks to when God was faithful, those flashbacks to when God's goodness was manifested, those flashbacks when God's faithfulness and trustworthiness was manifested. I remembered that's the way you are. And my prayer came to you. And so when you remember God's faithfulness, memory is a tool God uses. But when we remember God's faithfulness, then we remember it's time for me to talk to him. It's time for me to, to share all of these burdens with him and let him take them from me again. That's a way of thinking about that. So again, this is a marvelous stirring in the life of Jonah of what a relationship with his God looks like. He confessed, O oh Lord, my God, in verse 6, I remembered. And God is using his memory as a tool of restoration. And he prayed. Because he remembered, he prays. And that's important, as you see all through the Psalms. As the psalmists, there are many of these you could use an illustration, is railing against God, complaining against God. Then I remembered. I went into the temple. I went into the tabernacle. I sat before the Lord. I remember. I mean, it's just those marvelous ways in which God uses memory. We remember what God's like, and so we turn to Him. It's almost like the last thing we can do is what we should have done. The first thing we should have done is turn to God, but it's the last thing we do. But he remembered, my prayer came to you. Again, here's that phrase, in your holy temple. Again, it, that could be the temple in Jerusalem, or it could be the temple, the, the throne room of God in heaven, because as you know from the book of Hebrews and many other places, there is a literal temple in heaven. And so it's it's, it's, a, it's a tremendously important praise. I remembered who God is. I remember what he's like. I remember his attributes. And I turned to him in prayer. Where? In the place of his sovereignty. The place of his providential control. God, you're in control of my life. It is about time for me to acknowledge that. And so, this, this, again, God has Jonah right where he wants him. And then this statement, it's really more than one statement, these statements that are in effect of repentance. Jonah is now turning geographically in the right direction, but he's spiritually turning in the right direction. Repentance is to turn from the opposite direction, go the opposite direction. You're going one way, you turn and go the opposite direction. In this case, Jonah is running away from God. He's going to turn and run with God. And God is going to, of course, take him to Nineveh. 
which is Jim, isn't that isn't that the definition of repent is one word kind of you're talking about that's right the greek word for repentance is metanoia which means a change of your mind you're going one direction you completely change your mind about something uh, in most of the New Testament passages, repentance is focusing on Jesus. You're changing your mind about Jesus. You now have a complete, total understanding of who Jesus is. And that's what salvation is all about. You understand what Jesus did for you in the cross and resurrection. So we here, have a change of heart also, don't we? Well, yeah, and that's, Woody, that's right. That's, that's, another, that's another dimension of repentance, the changing of heart. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because heart is the center of our will. Um, most of the time in the Bible, that's how it's used. And so Jonah, I mean, this is, Jonah is turning back to God. Now, God had to get him to the point where he would do this as an act of his will. And it took getting him in the belly of the fish. But this is how God knows what it will take to get us to turn back to him. And God's grace is relentless. And I hope you understand that statement. God's grace is relentless. He never gives up on us. Even though we may give up on ourselves, God never gives up on us. And so you, this is why Jonah is such an important illustration of that. Now let's look at verses 8. Is that it? Were there any other questions? Okay. Verses 8 and 9 then. I, I call this a, the statement of his repentance now in its full uh, form sense. Those, those who pay regard to vain idols. Now, let's look at the word vain. Uh, I, again, read from the SV translation. Some of your translations might have a different adjective there, but I think vain is the best way to translate it. Empty, meaningless. These idols cannot do what God does. These idols cannot exhibit the power that God does. Idols are vain, empty, useless, because they're dead. They're just pieces of wood or pieces of stone. And so Jonah, Jonah is, is making a, a, an important statement. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And so Jonah is making a doctrinal or theological statement to pay regard, to, to bend the knee, to, to defer to, to worship, to hold in high regard, vain, empty, useless idols produces no hope. And that is an axiomatic statement of the Bible. Idols produce no hope for life, no hope for the future, because in almost all idolatrous systems, whether you're in the ancient world or the modern world, idolatrous systems, you pay homage to that idol so he doesn't make your life miserable. The Christian worships God because of who he is, what he's done in salvation, and that fantastic hope 
that is produced by that kind of faith is the hope of eternal life, the hope that God always will take care of us, always has our best interests at heart, because the immediate result of, of, a, of a true faith in the true living God is hope for the future. I now know this God who's revealed himself in his word, who's revealed himself in scripture, who's revealed himself in his creative power. And because of my knowledge and understanding and now faith and trust in him, I have hope for the future. And so Jonah, I mean, this is a, this is a fantastic summarization of genuine faith, but he's doing it through the negative. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake hope. Forsake hope of what? Of steadfast love. Now, this is really difficult to translate. The ESV has chosen to translate this steadfast love. Many translations translate it faithfulness. Some translations uh, translate it trustworthiness. Mercy. In other words, you have no hope for anything in the future. If you know God, the one true and only God, you will have hope, and that will produce faith, trust, confidence, and that wonderful Hebrew concept of steadfast, loyal, covenant love of God. Because a person is enslaved to idolatry, is afraid of their gods. They're trying to placate their gods through the various sacrifices and cutting themselves on the things that the Baal prophet did on Mount Carmel that I was mentioning early in First Kings chapter 18. And so you yeah. see it here, Job is, uh, John is saying, to pay regard to a vain idol means you have no hope for the future. You have no hope in anything. You're putting your faith and trust in a piece of wood. Can you give some examples of modern day idols that, that come to your mind and well, I mean, you <laughs> you can go to uh, Hinduism, and uh, when I was writing my book on uh, worldviews, my publisher did a DVD of uh, each one of the worldviews. Uh, we did a lot of filming of things. Well, anyway, we have one of a in Chicago of a Hindu temple, and the gods that are in the front of the Hindu temple every day they change the food. And they change the water that, that the gods are supposed to eat and drink. And you have this lady. It's really marvelous in this DVD part of the book. This lady is walking around this building. She's walking around this building praying to Shiva, uh, one of the gods of Hinduism, going around and praying that they will acknowledge the food that she's brought them, acknowledge the drink that she's brought them in hopes that they will make her day to be a good day. She's doing all that to a piece of stone that's painted in different colors. That's in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States of America. <laughs> the same thing, you go to a Buddhist temple, you have exactly the same thing. Buddha, in, in at least one form of Buddhism, you're worshiping Buddha as a divine being, and you present sacrifices to him. That's idolatry. You believe that stone image is going to make your life better, is going to give you hope for the future. Jonah's saying, no. You're forsaking hope to worship and devote yourself to a piece of wood or a piece of stone. You have no hope. You have no certainty for the future. But in, in materialistic secular America, where you, you don't have that kind of idolatry, although that's in America, 
in all of our major cities. There's one here in Omaha. But you, you, you would have a materialism, someone who puts their total faith and trust in their bank account or their portfolio. And there's no hope for the future because anybody that studied financial history knows that there are downturns and you can lose everything. I'm, there are examples of anything you put your faith in and trust in that's not truly God, there's no hope for the future. You have no guarantee. But with God, he will take you through the valleys of life. He'll take you through the mountaintop experiences because your destiny is eternity with him. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said in John 14, and I'm coming back for you. So that's the hope. The hope you and I have is that Jesus made a promise. But if you believe in a piece of wood, you have no hope. But you go through all the ritualistic exercises, banking, banking on a lie. Oh, I got a little animated. Uh -huh. Thanks, Jim. Teaching. Can, can, I've got a, a question on the uh, uh, the word at the end of the um, of. It says uh, check. I'm sorry, my butchering the pronunciation. Now, which ver which verse are you in, Russ? The, the same one that we're talking about. Okay, the verse eight. Vanities, verse, that verse it's, eight. It, it's translated in ESV, steadfast love. In the right. King James, it's their own mercy. But the word is C-H-E-C-E-D. Is that a form of hesed? It is. It is a form of hesed. Or, or I pronounce it with the guttural hesed. Uh, it is a form of chesed. That's why the ESV editors have chosen to translate it steadfast love. Got it. Because I'm, I'm chesed. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a, a, a very a, a derivative of chesed. And uh -huh. so I I think boldly, but honestly, I think correctly, the ESV editors have captured the point. So that, I mean, it is sometimes translated faithfulness and mercy, a lot of different terms. Uh, editors over the, the various translation, I think ESV has done it right because it is a derivative of Chesed. It uh -huh. is it is correct to translate it that way because Chesed, steadfast, loyal love, is a covenant love of God. That's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. We've talked about that before. I think I even recommended a book to you about that. Oh, oh yeah. No, that that little book, it's only 100 pages long. Yeah. And I am around page 60 right now. Okay. And it is taking me forever to get through this. And it well, is, I got to thank it, you for this because it's well, like one it, of the major. Was, the guy who like, wrote it, it's his doctoral dissertation. So it was yeah. written for four people to understand it. But it, uh, it's really, it's, it's the most important book published on that subject. I, it is amazing. I yeah, mean, it I, really is. It's, if I've gotten one thing out of this uh, activity, I just, it's like one of those things that you just go, whoa, <laughs> like you thought you knew stuff and <laughs> the next hill opened yeah. up here. I was, yeah, so I, it, thank it, you for that. You're, you're welcome. So let's just review this again. I want you to make, don't miss the importance of verse eight, because that is applicable to you and me today in 2020. To put your hope, or let me, let me put it another way, to put your faith, the way they translate here, to pay regard to something vain, empty, and useless, forsakes you, prevents you, will never enable you to have hope. Because if you trust in something that isn't dependable 100% of the time, you've lost hope. And more importantly, hope 
for the steadfast, loyal covenant love of God, who always has your best interests at heart, who has set your destiny to be eternally eternity with him, to have an eternal fellowship and relationship with him. You worship a dead piece of stone, you don't have that. So Jonah is making a fantastic theological proposition here that is applicable as it was here in, in 700 and some BC to today, 2,700 years later. This is true. It's always true. You put your faith and trust in something that's vain, amply useless, that can't guarantee anything, you lose all hope. And Jonah in the belly of the fish affirms that. But he says, verse 9, but, strong adversative, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Not a vain, empty, useless piece of wood, but to you. And that's why Holy Temple in verse 7 or in verse 4 could refer to the temple in Jerusalem, or it could refer to the throne room of God. But he's saying, I will sacrifice to you. I will offer to you all that I have. And notice that with thanksgiving. Jim, he's kind of given a comparison that people that he is false idols, uh, they don't have any hope. But, uh, you know, I'm not like that. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to follow you, Lord. That's, that's exactly right. You know, Woody, you got it right. It's, it's, a, it's a clear contrast and a clear comparison. And it is, it is, I have chosen to follow you. But remember what it took Jonah. I maybe should put it this way. What it took God to get Jonah to the place where he will acknowledge us. I mean, he has a relationship with God, or he wouldn't have been a prophet of God. But he doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. And so he Jonah, runs. Jonah's saying, oh, man, I messed up, but I'm going to do better. I'm going to, yeah. I promise yeah. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm back. That's right. I'm back. Yeah. And then I will say, with the voice of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you, which I have vowed I will pay. Now that, that is the, that's the exuberant apex of repentance. As Woody just put it, I'm back, Lord. I'm in this relationship with you because I know one thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is an exclusive statement. And again, note that the, the name for God there is Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, not to these vain, useless gods, not to these empty promises, but to Yahweh. And remember, that is the self-existent, self, self-existent God of the universe, the, the great I am of the universe. And it is salvation, deliverance from the belly of the fish, but also deliverance from the bondage to sin belongs only to Yahweh. And that is an acknowledgement of the exclusive nature of the one true and only God. And Jonah, it took him getting into the belly of the fish to once again acknowledge the truth. I remembered who God was. I could now pray to him, confess to him, be restored to a relationship because I know who he is. And then this, this marvelous conclusion, 
Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. What attribute of God does that illustrate? His sovereignty. God is ordering his creation to do something. It's like Jesus standing on the, the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and ordering it in the midst of a storm, be still, and his creation obeys him. So here is God's creation obeying him, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Is that yeah, mercy? Question, question. When, when did you think Jonah, uh, based on scripture here, thought he was going to be redeemed from the belly of the great fish? Uh, okay, now I'm not sure I'm understanding. You mean when, in, in terms of time? Or, or do you mean how? Yeah, long? I mean, well, that, that he was in fact going to be, uh, uh, that he would not lose his life in the belly of this great fish. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I can answer that definitively, Fred. <laughs> I, I mean, I really, I don't know if I can answer that. I do think that what, what we are reading in chapter two, this prayer is Jonah is being very, first of all, he's very, very honest and very transparent with the God, with the Lord. This, this is going to take my life, but then I remembered. And so it is, in this belly of the fish, as you know, we know that he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I mean, the Bible tells us that. But it seems to me that when he, that phrase, he remembered the Lord, it is at that point that turning back to the Lord, he realizes is his only way to escape death. That if he doesn't turn to the Lord, he will die in the belly of the fish. I don't think it's wrong to say it that way. But if you're asking for an exact time, I don't know. But we know he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So when during that three-day period did he realize all this? I don't know if, if I can answer that. The way it's stated here, it seems like it's like this. The, 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 it's two days have gone. We're in the 23rd hour of the third day. He says this, and the Lord orders the fish to spit him out. I'm making that up. I, I don't know that. But when you read it, it almost like at the very last minute, Jonah comes back to the Lord. But maybe not. Maybe that's not the right way to look at it. Thank you. But he does realize the only way he's going to, the only way he's not going to die is if he turns back to the Lord. Woody, did you have a question? I thought I saw your light go on. Uh, no, I, I think I'm fine. Thank you. Okay. Doctor, I was going to ask yeah. something, but... Yeah. I don't know what it was. Dr. Ekman, I, I missed okay. what you said about the attribute of God. What was yes. that again? Well, it and the Lord spoke to the fish. That's the sovereignty of God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, ordering his creation to obey him. And I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the major themes as we looked at uh, when we started this book. I had that little slide that you have that's in your notes, the sovereignty of God in the book of Jonah. And here God is ordering his creation to obey him. And the fish you know, vomited Jonah out in the land. And we have to assume, because he's headed to, to, uh, to Nineveh, that he vomited him out on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> Probably in Israel. Uh, you know, it doesn't say it specifically. But I don't think he vomited him out in Spain or France or Italy. I think it was in uh, the eastern Mediterranean, more than likely the kingdom of Israel. 
But anyway, so God, let's summarize this before I introduce, uh, we're almost out of time, but before I introduce chapter three, which we'll do next week. But this prayer is, is the turning point in Jonah's life. He has been running from God. He defied God openly. God had to get him back, but God knew what it was going to take. And the sovereign Lord of the universe orders this fish, great fish, whether he creates them specifically or just a great fish in the Mediterranean, to take Jonah, put him in his belly, swallow him. And so that's that, that, that tremendously important sovereign act of God is what brings about, brings about Jonah's repentance. Let's put it another way. Jonah is under the disciplinary hand of God. But I want to remind you of something. The disciplinary hand of God is always restorative in its goal, not punitive. I hope you understand what I mean by those words. God's goal of discipline is always to restore us not to punish us. Now, I mean, to, in a sense, the, you say, well, he's being punished. Well, he is, and it is hard for him, but it's, it's a discipline. It's like when you discipline your child, you know, some of you, your kids are all grown, but a few of you still have younger children. When you discipline your child, you're, you're, your focus isn't punishing them. Your focus is restoring them. You want them to change their behavior. Well, that's I know what, what I was doing. I know what I was going to say. I, I yeah. the Lord gave gave Jonah mercy, and he he did. He says, "All right, I'm going to give you another chance. <laughs> I want you to do what I ask you to do." Okay, that's right. That's exactly right. And and then the final point, just to to summarize, is you see here what is I think really important. Jonah knew his God. He knew what his God was like, and so in verse seven says he remembered the Lord. It isn't that he'd forgotten him. I mean, he always knew who God, but he remembers who Yahweh is. I know why I'm here. I know what my God is like. As Woody just said, he's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. And he has my best interests at heart. So I am coming back, Lord, to this vital relationship with you, because I know idolatry is useless and vain and empty but not my relationship with you. Salvation belongs to Yahweh and no one else. So it, it's, a, it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. It really is. And now he's back headed to Nineveh. And chapter Dr. three. Dr. Ackman. Uh, yes. Before we go on, could I ask a couple sure. of questions? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, or maybe it's an observation or more of a question. So, I mean, I would presume as I read this that God knew exactly what it was going to take to redirect Jonah, to, to get him to change his life. And so he metered out this particular discipline in his life. That's right. So is it, I mean, first question, is, that, is it a, an application from this that that as he deals with us, we can anticipate that it's going to be exactly what it would take for us to be brought back to repentance sort of that's question number one and number two is I mean a lot of things happen in life that may not be disciplinary in this sense that we would see as negative or harm harmful or hurtful for example and, and how do we distinguish between what is disciplinary and corrective and what is just part of doing life 
Well, that is a great question, Jim. I mean, it really is. And in one sense, I'm not sure it's an easy one to answer, but I, I do think, I know, and I'm gonna speak very personally here. I know, I know when God's disciplining me. <laughs> I mean, I, the Lord usually makes that pretty clear that if, if we are under his discipline, it's corrective. It, it, it's pretty clear why I am going through what I'm going through. But you are also right. It, 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 what, what does James chapter 1, verse 2 say? Count it all joy and encounter various trials. Because God is dakimazo. God is testing your faith and maturing and growing you. And so that's God's curriculum for growth. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. And the fallen brokenness of our world is also our fallenness and brokenness. We are sinners. We've been saved by grace, but those old habits and patterns have to be dealt with. And God does that through the trials and tribulations of life, the mountain peaks and the valleys of life. And I think for you and me, the normal ups and downs of life are the things that you and I face every single day. But Jim, I know if I defy God, if I, I, I know I'm doing something that he does not want me to do, and something happens to me the next day that's directly focused on that, God wants to get my attention. Jim, you've got to deal with this. I don't want this in your life. This is sin. This is not something that pleases me. Jim, I'm going to help you deal with it. So, I mean, that's a very broad answer, Jim. <laughs> But I, I think sometimes it might be a little difficult, but trials and tribulations are the norm of life. How we respond to them is what God is most interested in. And that's what Jonah is doing. He came back to remembering what his God was like. That is, God is good. That is, God has his best interests at heart. That God's plan for his life is greater than his plan. Okay, Lord, I submit. I give up. I surrender. I'm yours. I'll go to Nineveh. So I don't know, Jim, I, I probably didn't answer that very well, but there are just a, a few thoughts ab about that. God is interested, I think, most of all, in how we respond to these things. A defiant, defensive, I don't care what you're saying, God, I'm not going to do this, is not something he's delighted to hear. <laughs> all right, I looked at the clock here. My goodness, I better close. Next week, we will deal with chapter three, where Jonah's ministry in Nineveh. It's one of the greatest evangelistic crusades in human history. Mm -hmm. We're going to look at it as the Billy Graham crusade. Uh, no, we're not. I'm just kidding. But it's a great crusade, and the effects of it are, are monumental. All right, let me pray. I'm sorry about that tech failure. There. I don't know what happened. So I didn't hit anything. It just must have been my computer for some reason. Father, we're grateful for our study in the book of Jonah. Thank you for this, uh, this wonderful prayer that we've seen in Jonah. As he's very transparent, he's very up above board. He's confessing his heart to you. And he acknowledges that you and you alone uh, are the source of salvation. The deliverance which he'll experience from the oil of the fish and the deliverance from sin and rebellion, it's only Yahweh that does that. And that wonderful contrast between those who pay homage to vain idols and those who acknowledge the Lord God in verse 8 and 9. What a tremendous contrast. Help us to be men and women of strong, strong faith, strong, strong worship and devotion to you.
Our loyalty is to you. Help us to be faithful, loyal uh, followers of Jesus. Because, Lord, in this dark world where there's so much chaos and hurt, we want to represent you well. We want to be your ambassadors. And our attitude, as well as our devotion and loyalty to you, is part of that. So we ask you to help us to do that. Give these dear people a good rest of the week. Protect and watch over them. We commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. Bye.